the Spirit is speaking to Peter and showing Peter, the one who was in some special way supposed to be binding and loosening, opening and closing, showing Peter that these Gentile Christians have been given the full blessing of salvation despite that they are not Jews, despite that they don't eat kosher, and they have not been circumcised, and they they might even have been wearing polyester pants and eating a hot dog at the time. They are not under the law, and yet they are receiving the Spirit. Nobody had ever seen that before. Nobody had ever thought that through. So God is going slow, and he's making sure that Peter doesn't miss it. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Acts chapter 10 might be the most important chapter in the entire New Testament. That's quite a statement. We've seen the gospel crossing boundaries before, but this is a big one. This is the big one in terms of the first century context. From now on, in Christ, the boundary markers between Jew and Gentile have been torn down. From this point on, the church is going to be a boundary-breaking, gospel-preaching, other-including kind of place. But what does that mean? Because getting this wrong, either way, can have massive consequences for our worship and our witness in the wider world. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 10. I don't think it would be a huge stretch to say that Acts 10 is the most important chapter in the book of Acts. I don't think it would be a stretch to say that Acts 10 narrates the most significant events in Christian history since the discovery of the empty tomb. Up until this point, the Christian movement has been a movement of Jews to Jews and to half-Jews, if we may so characterize the Samaritans. But Cornelius is not a Jew. He's not a half-Jew. He's not a proselyte, a converted Jew. He is no kind of Jew. And yet in this chapter, we're going to see him converted filled with the Holy Spirit, and baptized into membership in the Christian church. This is a game changer. And after this, nothing will ever be the same. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared in terror at him and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, to understand the story, we need to understand who Cornelius is. He is a Roman, obviously. He's a soldier. A centurion was a soldier in charge of 100 other soldiers, what we would call today a captain, He was also obviously a good man and a good father. 
His whole household was involved in charity and prayer, but he was not a Jew. He was a God-fearer, but not a Jew, not a proselyte. People who were not ethnically Jewish could convert to Judaism and undergo circumcision, but we know that Cornelius hadn't done that. We know, first of all, because if he had, then this story wouldn't be very interesting, and it wouldn't be given two whole chapters of real estate in the middle of Luke's account. But we also know it from chapter 11, verse 3, wherein Peter is asked by the church to respond to the report that he went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So Cornelius was an uncircumcised man. He was not a Jew. Nevertheless, God chooses Cornelius to be the first full Gentile convert in the Christian church. To accomplish this, he gives Cornelius a vision, and in the vision, he tells him to send for Peter, who will more fully explain the way of salvation to him. And boy, this sounds for all the world like so many of those conversion stories of Muslim background people that we've been hearing about for the last several years. Can God use a vision to move someone in the direction of salvation? I get asked that question all the time. People hear those stories of Muslim folks coming to Christ and they ask that question. And I would just say, maybe we shouldn't even be asking that question after reading the story. The answer to that question has to be yes, because that's exactly what we see in the story. So Cornelius sends his servants to bring the apostle Peter to his house. Verse 9 says, the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Just for reference sake, that'd be about noon. The first hour of the day is what we call 6 a.m. sunrise. So the sixth hour would be about what we call noon. Verse 10, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. (laughs) By the way, only the Apostle Peter would ever respond to a direct command from God by saying, By no means. This is now the third time he has done that in the New Testament. He did it in Mark 8 when Jesus started talking about the necessity of his suffering and dying on the cross. He did it in John 13 when Jesus said that he was going to wash Peter's feet. Praise the Lord for the Apostle Peter. Without him, I think we would all feel entirely inadequate. Thankfully, the Lord is very patient. Verse 15 says, And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them Accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? 
And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So obviously Peter did not understand the dream in terms of all its various applications and implications, but he understood enough. He understood that something had changed and that this change now permitted him to disregard the Jewish food laws that would have otherwise precluded Peter from going to the house of Cornelius to share the gospel. That's about all he has figured out at this point in the story. Of course, he'll put some other pieces together when he sees how the Spirit blesses the coming missionary endeavor, and he will put some more pieces together as he talks this through with the home church upon his return, and then there will be further reflections at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and of course the church will be wrestling with this throughout the entirety of the New Testament era. This isn't the end of the story, it is just the beginning. So we have to be careful not to assume too much understanding in Peter at this point. We've been thinking about this dream for 2,000 years. Peter is still thinking about it as he's walking to Caesarea. What David Peterson says here reflects the 2,000 years of thought and reflection that we've enjoyed. It's, it's worth reading as long as you don't assume that Peter had this figured out at this point in time. Peterson says here, The threefold vision given to Peter offers a new perspective on the way in which Scripture is to be interpreted and the gospel is to be preached. The provisions of the Mosaic law for cleansing and sanctification are fulfilled in Christ, and thus the cultic restrictions excluding Gentiles from the community of God's people are no longer applicable, closed quote. Now, we know that Peter wasn't all the way there yet. He, he had to have a run-in with the Apostle Paul in Galatia before everything would fall into place here, but I think Peterson is right in telling us what this means however much of it Peter understood at the time. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here because at this point in the story, I don't think it is just Peter that has some work to do in terms of figuring out all the implications for this. I think a lot of us, even 2,000 years later, are in that boat too. How exactly does this work? Is the Old Testament law still in place or is it not in place? It does kind of sound like something big is happening here, but how big? Does it cancel everything from the Old Testament or just a few things? We kind of need to figure that out because people on the internet often accuse us of being inconsistent because we don't believe in what the Old Testament says about mixed fibers, for example, but we do believe what it says about human sexuality. So are we being inconsistent here? How much is actually being canceled in this passage? I guess that's the heart of my question. Yeah, it's a good question. I think you could argue that understanding how the Old and New Testaments go together is more important today than perhaps ever before in living memory. If you have an internet connection, you need to understand this. Every time a hockey player refuses to wear a pride jersey, Christians are going to get accused of being hypocritical. You, know, you wear polyester pants, but you still believe in what your Sky Fairy says about homosexuality. <laughs> Way to pick and choose there, buddy. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think I read that comment on the internet somewhere just this week, I think, but they didn't use the word buddy. No, I'm sure they didn't. <laughs> in essence, what they're saying is that we're being inconsistent. They think we're just picking and choosing which Old Testament laws we still care about and which we don't. And the average Christian who has grown up in the church and who, 
who just accepts the fact that, yeah, we wear polyester pants, but no, we don't support certain sexual activities and behaviors, has a hard time explaining why that is. But there actually is a pretty straightforward answer. What the Holy Spirit is saying to Peter here is that the Old Testament ritual law has now served its purpose and is being permanently set aside. That's what is meant by rise, Peter, kill, and eat. Now, as Bible readers, we knew this was coming. We sensed this was coming the moment John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John seems to be saying there that everything in the Old Testament ritual law, everything that it looked forward to, will now be realized and perfected in the person and work of Christ. So that was our first clue. And then our second clue came when Jesus said in Mark 7, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Closed quote. Thus he declared all foods clean. So we knew this was coming. Peter knew this was coming, or at least he should have known it was coming. But of course, centuries of tradition die hard. The point is that some aspects of the Old Testament law were temporary or provisional. Now, you don't need to be alarmed by that. That, that is basic Orthodox Christianity. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, said that the ceremonial law of the Jews was a tutelage by which the Lord was pleased to exercise, as it were, the childhood of that people until the fullness of the time should come when he was fully to manifest his wisdom to the world, closed quote. So the ceremonial or ritual law of the Jews was a tutelage. It was a teaching tool. It was never meant to be permanent. It was meant to be preparatory. It was preparing us to receive the wisdom of God and Jesus Christ. Now, to be clear, some aspects of the Old Testament law are not preparatory. They are permanent. Contrasting the ceremonial law in the Old Testament to the moral law, R.C. Sproul says here, God would never repeal the moral law because to do so, he would be denying his character, close quote. The moral law is unchanging, but the ceremonial law was temporary. And here we see it being repealed to prepare the way for Peter and by extension for the whole church to take the gospel into Gentile territory. From now on, the rule for missionaries is to eat whatever is set before you. Don't ask questions. Don't worry about the ritual law. If they bring you a hot dog boiled in goat's milk, you eat it and you ask for seconds. That's the new deal. From this point on, it is all ahead full in pursuit of the Great Commission. Praise the Lord. All right. Well, that actually seems pretty simple. I, I've been going to church for a long time, and I've never seen the pastor sacrificing a goat or pouring a bottle of wine over the offering, and I've never heard a sermon about why polyester pants are from the devil. And that's because the ceremonial law is no longer in effect. It was a teaching tool. It was temporary and has now been set aside in Christ. But the moral law is eternal and unchanging. So, if something was out of line with God's character 3,000 years ago, because God hasn't changed, that moral standard hasn't changed. Is that about right? Yeah, that's a good summary. The moral law in the Mosaic Covenant is a particular expression of a timeless reality. Theologians sometimes talk about the eternal law of God, which does not and cannot and will not ever change, which found expression in the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant has expired. But the moral law of God is eternal. 
It existed before the Mosaic Covenant, and it continues to exist today because God does not change. So we don't sacrifice goats. We can wear polyester pants. We can eat bacon. Thank you, Lord. And we still believe everything the Bible says about human sexuality, not to mention honoring your parents, not killing people, not stealing, telling the truth at all times, and not coveting. Is that a decent summary? Yeah, exactly right. All right. All right, so thanks for walking us through that. Uh, Let's jump back into the story now at verse 13. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, Your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, let's just pause here. Peter isn't saying that the gates of heaven are now wide open and anyone who fears God in any way and behaves in a moral or admirable way is to be considered saved. If he is saying that, we have a huge problem because that doesn't go with anything else that is said in the rest of the New Testament. Rather, what he seems to be saying is that God is not showing partiality to any particular people with respect to the blessings of the gospel. The gospel is to be taken to all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. I, Howard Marshall, puts it well when he says, this does not mean that salvation is possible apart from the atonement wrought by Jesus Christ, but rather that on the basis of his death and resurrection, the gospel is offered to all people who are willing to receive it and recognize their need of it, closed quote. Verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed 
because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So, Peter preaches the basic facts of our redemption. He talks about the perfect life of Jesus, the sacrificial death of Jesus, the victorious resurrection of Jesus, and the coming future judgment of Jesus. And he says that it is through faith in Jesus that people may be forgiven of their sins. And as they were hearing that, the Holy Spirit fell on those who believed before they were even baptized. In fact, I think you could say, so that they would be baptized. The point of this unusual sequence seems to be to convince Peter that these people have been accepted by God and therefore must be accepted into the church. The message seems to be that the church must never be more discriminating than God himself. God does something very unusual here. He repeats the phenomenon associated with the day of Pentecost. Luke has not mentioned people speaking in tongues when they got saved for several chapters now. Now, I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying that it hasn't been mentioned. It obviously wasn't the focus. Luke didn't say anything about the Samaritans speaking in tongues. He, he didn't say anything about Paul speaking in tongues when the scales fell off his eyes. He, he didn't say that Tabitha was a great tongue speaker. It hasn't been mentioned at all in any way since the day of Pentecost. So why is it coming back here at this particular moment in space and time? I think the message is pretty obvious. The Holy Spirit wants it to be very clear that these Gentiles are not to be treated as second-class citizens in the church of Jesus Christ. They are every bit as saved, every bit as accepted, every bit as blessed, and every bit as equipped as any Jewish other. That seems to be the point. The Spirit is speaking to Peter and showing Peter, the one who was in some special way supposed to be binding and loosening opening and closing, showing Peter that these Gentile Christians have been given the full blessing of salvation despite that they are not Jews, despite that they don't eat kosher, and they have not been circumcised, and they, they might even have been wearing polyester pants and eating a hot dog at the time. They are not under the law, and yet they are receiving the Spirit. Nobody had ever seen that before. Nobody had ever thought that through. So God is going slow, and he's making sure that Peter doesn't miss it. Peter needs to understand this, because Peter will have to explain this and advocate for this to the rest of the church gathered in Jerusalem and hearing reports of this new work of the Spirit. And that is what we see him doing in the very next chapter of the book of Acts. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I'm curious as to exactly how to apply the basic principle here. On one level, this story is talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ crossing another boundary, the boundary between Jew and Gentile. But I imagine that someone out there could take that and say, well, then the church should be crossing every boundary. If it's no longer right to exclude people because they are bacon-eating Gentiles, then maybe it's no longer right to exclude anyone on any basis. How should I answer that? Because that argument does get made. Yeah, it absolutely gets made. But thankfully, I think the answer to that kind of suggestion is pretty clear here in the text for anyone who's honestly looking for it. 
In verses 34 to 35, Peter tells us how he understands the vision and what the words of God interpreting the vision mean to him. He says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Close quote. So there's your basis for inclusion. It doesn't matter where you come from or what color you are or what language you speak or what food you eat. Anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him. Okay, but what does it mean to fear God? That's a classic Bible term that might not make a lot of sense to some of our listeners. Yeah, for sure. Old Testament scholar Charles Bridges has a very helpful definition. It's I've got a whole list of definitions on the fear of God because it's an expression, as you say, that most people today don't understand. But this is, I think, one of the most accessible and useful. So here's what he says. He says, The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law, closed quote. So in essence, Peter is saying that anyone can be reconciled to God through the gospel of peace. No matter what country you're from or what religious background you have, if you come to God in the way that he prescribes, if you are reconciled to him through the person and work of Christ, and if you're willing to relate to him with affectionate reverence, loving and obeying him as your creator and Lord, then you are acceptable to him. He receives you. And on that basis, the church is pleased to receive you as well. Yes, amen to that. And as always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.